Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Micaiah, what do we need to know right up top? So Car Wheels on a Gravel Road is the fifth studio album from Lucinda Williams. It came out in 1998. If you're someone who looks at the Rolling Stone 500 list, you'll notice that it went from like the 200s up to the top 100. I think at like 98 or like 99 um, in this most recent list. So it's a climber Mm -hmm. and it's in their top 100. Um, So what was once kind of like an underappreciated album seems to have gained more appreciation over time. And I think that is um, because of, a younger artist kind of going back and rediscovering her and really kind of making her influences known. Yeah. I, I, and one of the things that has been kind of interesting is seeing how many artists just in the last five or six years are covering her music, like young, young audiences too. Like people, some of, some of whom weren't even born when this album came out. Uh, it's interesting the audience this is finding. It's one of those things that gives me hope about some of the other albums you and I love that we feel like haven't gotten enough uh, admiration or or enough recognition yet. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a good indicator that maybe the time is coming where we'll see that. That is, as people who find those albums kind of come into their own and, and, and take on bigger roles, the appreciation for those albums will only increase. And I think that's what's happened with Lucinda Williams, but I will say this is an album that is very strong. I mean, like there's, there's not a bad track on this album. There's no skippable tracks on this album. If anything, this album, the only kind of dig against this album might be that it's a hard album to fit in a category and I think especially as you talk about an album that came out in the 90s, and it's it's funny that we're doing this this album immediately after doing Miseducation of Lauren Hill. It also came out in 1998. And we, XO yeah, came and out in 1998. So we're doing three from 1998 in a row. Yeah. Oh. but and, and again, XO, maybe not fully appreciated. Uh, you know, certainly Miseducation of Lauren Hill was was definitely widely appreciated when it came out. But one of the things we talked about with Miseducation of Lauren Hill is that it's kind of a hard album to classify in a specific genre. And that's mm-hmm. definitely true for Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. There are elements of this album that make it sound like a country album. There's elements of this album that make it sound like a folk album, like a rock album, like a blues album, like a bluegrass album. I mean, it it's kind of all over the place. And I think we can probably credit this album with the creation of the genre or categorization of music we refer to now as Americana, which almost seems like a label that was was created just to describe Lucinda Williams. And there's a bunch of artists now that have kind of fallen in to that stream. But really, Americana seems to be just this way of trying to define what Lucinda Williams is. I mean, I wouldn't credit just Lucinda Williams, but she she is part of a larger group like Steve Earle, uh, who came about in the 80s. And who is a co-producer on this album? Who who is a who has like a pretty big hand in making this album, and also in the late '80s, the emergence of people like 
Uncle Tupelo, mm-hmm. right? Um, and half of which of those people would become welcome, who also get grouped into this Americana thing and also alt country because there's there's just this moment in the 70s where country begins to go a little bit pop with mm-hmm. people like Dolly Parton and that was her intention but there's also a moment when part of Nixon's southern strategy is to like adopt country music as the music of the, the conservatives in the United States so then country music became the genre of traditional American values which was contrary to country music which oh, yeah. was about alcoholism drug addiction sex mm-hmm. violence depression so you start to see a new wave in the mid to late 70s of like outlaw country and then and then you know when they're outside of that comes this new camp that Lucinda's part of this alt country um americana right there's just like well how do you find it because it's not country music as we know it now mm-hmm. but it's not quite this it's not quite that or it's a little bit this and kind of a lot more of that you know but it's all under the umbrella of folk music yeah and, and, and folk music itself is country music blues right what we also call like american roots music right folk music is not a genre it is a way to describe a bunch of different music traditions in this country and other countries right which have inspired the american folk music you know um including you know european and even african countries yeah so she she encompasses all that her first record is a is a blues record the first song is a robert johnson cover Mm -hmm. you know so she she's very much inspired by the blues but also treated like an indie rock star in the 80s um but is also firmly in the country music world you know so yeah it it is kind of hard to define what she is but uh, in my mind um i think we are discussing what is actually the first proper country album to make our list all that being said, I, I, I do think of this pretty firmly as a, as a country album um, that just also happens to have all these other elements because country has had all of these elements. Country has always been, you know, uh, these music traditions have been more incestuous in the past where it was much more, you know, common to hear blues riffs and country riffs kind of sounding more similar because that is rock and roll. You know, mm-hmm. So even when it goes more rock and roll, like, well, that just is country and blues put together. It always has been. So um, no matter where you, where, where it's going or what you're calling it, it, it all has the same roots, really, uh, from the American South in particular. I don't know that I agree with genre specifying Car Wheels and a Gravel Road as a country album. It, 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 is, it is a country album. It is not just a country album. And, and, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I, I, but but I I struggle with the idea of us saying, you know, he, here this fits into this kind of defining category. Um, I think there are a lot of albums that we've had on that that are influenced by a very similar style of music. I mean, in, in many ways, music from Big Pink is carrying a lot of the similar influences that Lucinda Williams is on this album. In 1966, 1967, John Wesley Harding, The Basement Tapes, and music from Big Pink are all pretty much written and made like in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that gives the go-ahead to people like Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And then 
you know, even Van Morrison with Tupelo Honey, that's really kind of where Americana, long before, you know, people think of the term, right? Because remember, that's Dylan's country phase. Yeah. That's what we called it back then. You know, now we call it Americana. All that to say, I, I think that it's probably... Um, just in terms of the podcast, this this is the first album we have done that could in any way be labeled as a as a country album. I think that's I think that's probably fair. I don't know that I would label it as a country album, um, and I don't know that I, would, I I don't know that you can label it as anything other than just a really great album. And and maybe that's what makes this album great is its kind of indefinable quality. Is the hesitation just to call it country? Is it because country music calling something strictly country music just gives it certain connotations automatically. I think of it as a country album that reveals much more about country music than like in the you know, 1998 when country music is Tim McGraw, Garth Brooks, Shania Twain, Faith Hill, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, that's country music. Whereas this alternative country scene was presenting something as like, well, actually country music has way deeper roots. Yeah. This. yeah. Yeah. So is it is it something that is just opening up like, hey, country music is more than that. So, but you don't want to call it country because you don't want to risk, you know, tying it to something that is inauthentic, if you want to call it that. In the same way that we would call some of our favorite bands indie rock bands before we would call them rock bands, because if we call them a rock band, then we, that runs the risk of them being connected to like music that we prefer much less. Maybe. I think also because I was, you know, I was 17 when this album came out and this is an album that came out at the same time that Shania Twain was the biggest country star in the world. I think it's almost the biggest pop star in the world. I mean, she was enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this is so in so many ways and in so many different ways, this is so not that. And that's, and that's the thing. So it does. So maybe, maybe that's part of it is, is there's a little bit of that, but I, I could point to, you know, three Johnny Cash albums, two Willie Nelson albums and a Dolly Parton album that all, that all have picture, you know, that, that have similarities to car wheels on a gravel road. So, I mean, I, I, I think that some of it may be just a pushback to modern pop country, um, which isn't really country music i mean it's it's essentially it's essentially pop music with the occasional mandolin yeah i mean but and i think that's kind of what i'm getting at you know is you know whereas especially in the 90s i think people would have been more inclined to say this is real country music instead of being like no 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 it's not country it's not like all that it's not that it's actually um it's americana it's it's not country music because it's it's not like shania twain which Mm -hmm. by the way that those like couple of shania records by the way are really great records like oh, they're phenomenal for, pop they're phenomenal pop albums like they are nothing but hits like bulletproof nothing but earworms and just like wonderfully written pop songs so we're not just here to like knock shania twain and like set up this like weird dichotomy between lucinda and like oh, shania it i i think it is more than a country album but this is the first country album that we've looked at that being said we're not alone in struggling to define or compartmentalize this album. And there is a phenomenal review, updated review of this album done by Pitchfork. 
and it was written by our guest today, Jen Pelly. Micaiah, tell us about our guest. Sure. Um, Jen wrote the 33 and a third on the raincoats. Um, and like you said, Rob, she wrote the every, every Sunday pitchfork uh, will revisit like an older album. And back in 2018, she wrote something on Lucinda Williams. And she's also interviewed her for the LA times. She just contributed something recently to the New York times. And, um, most exciting for this episode is there's a new book coming out called this woman's work, which is a bunch of essays uh, on music and uh, coded by, um, by Kim Gordon of Sonic youth. And Jen has contributed uh, an essay on that about Lucinda Williams. Mm-hmm. So and we're going to talk tomorrow. Yes. Yes. And if you're hearing this now, it comes out tomorrow. So you can pick it up uh, wherever books are sold. And if you can't find it locally, of course, you can always find it online. If you don't want to avoid, if you want to avoid um, some of the bigger retail online places, there are plenty of like independent bookstores and sites to help you find independent bookstores uh, that are available. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to let you hear from our independent record stores of the week. I say, I say stores because we have two this week, two independent record stores, one located in Brooklyn and the other in Manhattan and the Lower East Side. And then we're going to let you hear from our sponsor, Anchor. And then we'll be back with our guest, Pitchforks, Jen Pelly. I want to shout out um, first Human Head Records in Brooklyn because that is where I bought my copy of the self-titled Lucinda Williams record, Lucinda Williams record, like um, uh, pretty soon after that record store opened um, around 2015 or something. Um, And then also there's a new record shop in the East Village called Ergo Records that I've been spending time at recently. And um, love. They also have copies of my Raincoats book if you live in New York and you want a copy of it. Um, but yeah, shout out to Ergo Records. Once again, that's Human Head Records, located at 289 Messerol Street in Brooklyn, New York, 11206. Their phone number is area code 347-987-3362. You can find them on the web at humanheadnyc.com. We've also mentioned Ergo Records, located at 32 East 2nd Street, New York, New York, 10003. Their phone number is 312-351-3232. Check out these record stores today.
She has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Guardian, the Wire, and many others. And this Wednesday, she has an essay on Lucinda Williams coming out in this woman's work, Essays on Music. And so we want to encourage our listeners to get that. We are so glad to have her with us today to talk all things Lucinda Williams, car wheels on a gravel road, Jen Pelly. Jen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I love talking about Lucinda. So what a joy. That's awesome. Well, how did you get started listening to Lucinda Williams? And for this book that's coming out on Wednesday, why did you choose to write about her for this book? I think I started listening to Lucinda when I was in my mid twenties. Um, I'm 32 now, so not that long ago, really in the grand scheme of things. Um, I have lots of friends who um, have told me like they, they got into Lucinda Williams through their parents, but, but that wasn't necessarily the case for me. I found that um, uh, at a certain point, maybe around 2004, 14, um, Lucinda just seemed to be in the air and so many um, of my favorite musicians, particularly women singer songwriters who had come from like kind of like a punk scene um, were talking about Lucinda a lot. And um, there were also um, at that particular moment around 2014, 2015, I noticed that there were just tons of Lucinda covers like everywhere I turned and maybe that's just the case at any moment in the past 30 years and I had been picking up on it around me but I noticed I remember um uh Alison Crutchfield from the band Swearin had done a cover with um Sam Cooke Parrott from the band Radiator Hospital both of those bands were based in Philadelphia at the time of um something about what happens when we talk um, which I thought was so beautiful. And I don't remember, I don't know exactly if that's like the first time I heard a Lucinda song, but it was, it was definitely early on in my exploration of Lucinda's catalog. Um, but also um, this band I love from Los Angeles called Gun Outfit had done a cover of King of Hearts and um, this musician and poet now based in New York named Mary Jane Dunf um, had a project where she covered a song, Maria, and um, uh, a, a band called Dyke Drama, um, which was featuring um, Sadie, the, the singer of the hardcore band Gloss, had done a great cover of I Just Wanted to See You So Bad. Um, and of course, also, I have to shout out Katie Crutchfield from Wexahachie for talking about um, and covering Lucinda so often over the years. I feel like there was just, there was all of this... Um, like Lucinda's influence on so many of my favorite musicians was just so apparent. And um, so, yeah, it was around then. Um, I feel like I really started to get into her and explore her catalog um, and picked up copies of as many of her records as I could find. Um, and so when, um, when, uh, Kim first mentions this book to me, this one's work. Uh, originally, it was presented to me as a collection where each writer would be writing about a specific artist. Um, and that that framework uh, changed, but um, uh, 
I had mentioned Lucinda to Kim Gordon as one of the artists that I would like to write about. And she was really excited about that. And so, and it seemed she wanted me to write about Lucinda. So if Kim Gordon wants you to write about Lucinda Williams, <laughs> you write about Lucinda Williams. Um, I also just, I, I had written a couple of pieces about Lucinda in the past, but always felt like I just had more to say. Um, and particularly I had always had this dream of writing or for, for a few years, I had had this dream of writing an essay about the song Fruits of My Labor, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Baby, see how I've been living Velvet curtains on the windows too Keep the bright and unforgiving Life from shining through Baby, I remember all the things we did When we slept together in the blue behind your eyelids, baby Sweet baby Chase your sin through the gloom Till I found these purple flowers I will spend all soon smelling you for hours. Lavender lotus blossoms too. Water the dirt flowers last for you, baby. Sweet baby. Carwheels on a gravel road is the fifth album from Lucinda Williams, and she is famous for taking her time, uh, especially in her earlier albums, really kind of taking her time in releasing the albums. And so for our listeners, what is it that they need to know about Lucinda Williams' upbringing and her career that starts in 1979 that takes us to the 1998 release of Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Well, one thing I'll say is I, I did write, um, I wrote a piece about this album for Pitchfork a few years ago, one of the Sunday reviews that Pitch publishes um, about Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. So if anyone is interested in uh, like an overview of where Lucinda was at and what this record is like, um, uh, I humbly um, recommend uh, checking out that piece. Um, but uh, well, as you mentioned, she had been a musician for nearly 20 years at this point. She was in her 40s and she had had like constant like um, uh, issues with with record labels. Um, it almost seemed like Lucinda Williams and the music industry were incompatible. Um, she would get signed to a label and then the label would go bankrupt or she would sign to a label and then the person who brought her to the label would get fired or a label would shut down quickly after. Um, and so uh, her first her first records were on Folkways. Her third record was on Rough Trade. Um, and uh, I think that's a really interesting pairing. Like I, I, I can't think of another artist who was on the one hand record, you know, label mates with um, lead belly. And then on the other hand, label mates with like stiff little fingers and the raincoats. It's um, I think that says a lot about um, the type of music she was making, which was 
at, you know, un- unclassifiable for lots of people. Mm. Um, LA told her she was too country. Nashville told her too, she was too rock and roll is kind of like one of the classic lines on Lucinda Williams pre car on a gravel road. Um, and it, you know, we could, we could see her music as being Americana now, but that was also not something that uh, was as identifiable at the time. The idea that she, um, that she took so many years in between records, I think is probably a little bit overstated in like the mythology of, of Lucinda Williams. Um, I think it probably had less to do with her than it did with the music industry mm. that didn't know how to make sense of her music because she um she wasn't making formulaic music so it wasn't easily easy you know you couldn't slot it into uh, a commercial channel easily um like i interviewed her um for the la times two about two years ago and she said something to me um about how um when she was working on um like her self-titled album and her um the, the record after that sweet sweet old world um record execs would tell her things like your songs are, are unfinished they're incomplete because they don't have bridges and she would go home and she would listen to her bob dylan and neil young albums and be like okay like not all their songs have bridges either um but but yeah i think that she she just wrote unformulaic songs and mm. um and that's why we love her record industry didn't know what to do with her didn't know where to place her there wasn't a box that she kind of neatly fit in it, leading up to car wheels on a gravel road of course she she gets her first grammy where one of her songs passionate kisses from her self-titled album ends up being covered by Mary Chapin Carpenter. And then, and then it becomes this, it's almost like she, she has almost this relationship to, to Bob Dylan in a way in that there are so many people who don't think of themselves as Bob Dylan fans, but love all the covers, the kind of more popular, more famous covers of his work. And, and she, she seems to have that. And you actually wrote, about that relationship that Lucinda's heroes are Bob Dylan and Flannery O'Connor. And I know Micaiah has some questions there because those are huge heroes of his. How do you see Dylan and Flannery like influencing her work? Um, Is it something that is so obvious or is it something that you have to kind of read about to know it? Because people think, oh, she's a fan of Flannery O'Connor. Does that mean that she's writing about families being murdered on the side of the road? Um, but it's not, it's not that, um, but, um, in your essay that you wrote for the new book, you would mention something that I did not know is that she had, um, spent time in Milledgeville and on O'Connor's farm with the peacocks and everything. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about how O'Connor as a writer, um, who was a Catholic writer and, uh, wrote about the grotesque. And so how that influenced her and on top of that, you know, Dylan and his kind of approach to writing songs and also being someone who's not classifiable and can hop from genre to genre. I think that's a really good question. And it's something where I would love to read like a Flannery O'Connor scholar and hear, hear their take on it. Um, uh, but I, uh, 
I I always felt like it, it was just in the storytelling, especially on Carwheels on a Gravel Road. There, the sort of like narrative storytelling songwriting she's doing on that album, it's so apparent that she is trying to create this like um, uh, rock version of a great um, Southern novel, mm-hmm. um, and the the sorts of details that she is um, digging into on that album, wh- whether it's um, uh, uh, the, you know, it's so sensory. Um, and she, she writes about driving around in the South, being a kid in the backseat of a car and watching the scenery pass from the backseat. Um, she talks about being in the kitchen and like Lorette is on the radio and the smell of eggs and bacon. It's just, um, there's, there's so much there that, um, I feel like creates, she said to, um, she said in interviews that she felt like the whole record was a pitch for a little movie about the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there's also, um, the, the imagery, um, in songs like too cool to be forgotten of juke joints in the South, where a lot of the lyrics on that song are a kind of Dylan style collage of, um, uh, I get into this in my Sunday review about Carbials on a Gravel Road, but um, she was inspired by this uh, photo book of, of images of cheap joints and, and some of the lyrics specifically come from things that are written on the walls at, at cheap joints in the South. is just one of the most masterful examples of songwriting evoking a sense of place. Yeah, in terms of um, being inspired by both Flannery O'Connor and Dylan, I think you could also, you know, that came from the influence of her father also, who was a professor and um, taught poetry and he was a poet. And so she grew up in this um, context where there were writers and poets in the house and students coming over to play records. Um, uh, So that I think the influence of her father is really significant there too. Yeah. When you, when you say like a movie about the South, I think that, helps me understand the O'Connor part too. Cause I guess you could also look at it as a collection of short stories mm-hmm. um, in that way as well. And some of them about these kind of mythic figures like Blaze Foley. 
Mm-hmm. And Robert Johnson selling yeah. his soul to the devil. These are kind of images that wouldn't be, you know, unfamiliar to O'Connor stuff as well. Like things like wise blood and feeling people in your blood, you know, and, and, you know, that's how she like describes like a former lover. That's something very O'Connor-esque, feeling something in the blood. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And like you were saying, like, you know, her, her writing isn't, um, grotesque in the same way but there i feel like there's there's a lot of darkness in lucinda williams music mm-hmm. um from the beginning um especially on the um album that preceded carbills on a gravel road um sweet old worlds there are songs like um Pinola or or sweet old world which are very Absolutely. much like the things that someone loses in death um there's such like incredible songwriting on that album that uh, feels hard to summarize. The sun came up, it was another day, and the sun went down, you were blown away. Why'd you let go of your guitar? Why'd you ever let go that far drunken angel? Well, one of the things that we like to do on the podcast, especially as we're talking about these albums, is we like to ask a question, you know, what are what are the five, what are your five favorite songs on the album? Or maybe another way of understanding that might be, what are the five songs that are kind of the most key to understanding this record? And so we're going to give you the freedom to kind of answer either way. If, if it's kind of the five most important, the five songs key to understanding the album or just your five favorite, we'd, we'd love to hear your five favorite tracks on this record. It's so hard to choose um, because I do think it's one of those records where every single song is crucial. Every single song contributes something to the, the, the understanding and, and meaning of the record. But I think my favorite song on the album is Metal Firecracker. I just feel like in the, um, you know, Lucinda's, um, her her quote about it being a, a, a pitch for a little movie. I, I think Metal Firecracker just captures that mm-hmm. so beautifully. Um, uh, two people next to each other <laughs> driving through the South. It's such a good song. I like, um, it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I also love Greenville. I think Greenville is um, another song that I've seen Katie Crutchfield cover a couple of times. And oh, nice. um, uh, just so stunning. So like a, a really harrowing song, but um, like, so I remember writing in my piece for Pitchfork a few years ago about how um, Emmy Lou Harris is singing on it too feels kind of like an act of solidarity or something. It's a song that's about, um, like, you know, a toxic relationship, um, probably an abusive relationship based on the sorts of imagery that she's describing. Um, but there's something about it that feels very like, um, moving out of that, mm-hmm. uh, moving forward in a way. Um, yeah. When you wrote it, you said it was like Amy Lou Harris was like guiding her through it yeah. like, yeah. alongside with her, which I thought was, was really great. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, that's that's how that that always felt to me. And um, I think that it, it's such a powerful song. Don't wanna see you again or hold your hand, cause you don't really love me. You're not my man, you're not my man. Oh, you're not my man. Go back to Greenfield, just go back to Greenfield. Scream and shout And you make a scene When you open your mouth You never say what you mean Say what you mean Oh, say what you mean Go back to Greenville Just go back to Drunken Angel and Too Cool to Be Forgotten um, are two of my favorite songs. Uh, just the, you know, those are, I feel like those are kind of two of the anchors on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I actually, um, earlier this year, I wrote a review of a new album by the artist Hurry for the Riff Raff. And they, um, I believe it was Drunken Angel that they covered a few years ago for the Blaze Foley um, biopic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another cool example of a, of a current artist who's clearly very inspired by Lucinda Williams. Um, and then, God, there's, there's so many songs. I think Car Wheels on a Gravel Road and Concrete and Barbed Wire are two songs that are crucial to the understanding of the record um, and the types of songwriting, you know, the type of storytelling songwriting that Lucinda is doing here. Um, but I, in terms of my favorites, I also would mention the song I Lost It, um, which was originally, um, uh, originally appeared on the album Happy Woman Blues in 1980 and was re-recorded. Um, for, for this album. And I love both, both versions of it so much, but, um, I just love that song. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I I think, I think I lost it as such a great song and I love, I I actually think her redoing this song is such a kind of statement about this album because the, the, the heavy woman blues version is so country. Like, I mean, the, the fiddle part in it, it has, you know, it feels, it feels almost like a, like a bluegrass standard, the way she does it in 1980 and the way she does it on this album, it it just feels so much heavier. I mean, there's, it's, it's clearly, and I don't know if you could speak to this kind of how intentional or unintentional this was for her, but cartwheels and a travel road often gets labeled kind of the the or one of the defining kind of Americana albums 
And yet it seems like I lost it as her statement of saying, no, no, I'm, I'm making a rock album or, or at least doing a rock version of, of this song. And so I wonder, you know, especially kind of mentioning that I lost it is, is one of your favorites. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit for you, how, how do you see the kind of genre hopping or lack of kind of box to put this in for you now? Do you kind of have a, a, a place that you put this as you think about where it fits within music or are you comfortable with just kind of the, um, almost kind of the genre ambivalence that's happening in, in the album. Yeah, definitely the latter. I'd say that the genre ambivalence is more interesting to me just because these, these terms start to feel kind of like, um, uh, not meaningless, but, um, I think that because Lucinda is someone who for so long, um, the idea of genre was like this hurdle that she had to overcome in order for her music to be taken seriously and for her to find a place in the music industry. It's just like, um, maybe like as a fan, I prefer to just think about the writing and the performances and like the emotion behind the songs and like, um, like for with a song like I Lost It in particular, I think the journey of that song is really interesting on so many levels, on several levels. But like when I, I interviewed her in 2020, she told me something about Happy Woman Blues, which was that when she recorded it, she didn't want there to be drums on the album. And then um, I guess it was the, the engineer or the producer or someone who was involved with the recording of the record went and overdubbed drugs over the entire album without telling her. And, she, and she, so she felt like the record really did not like accurately represent her vision for the music. Um, and so the idea of, you know, uh, 18 years later, doing recording it again to get, bring the song closer to, to her vision of what, she wanted it to sound like, I think just it speaks to um, uh, that sense of her, um, you know, her conviction, her, her belief in her songs that she would continue to, to, to work on them and bring them to life in the way that she wanted them to sound, not in the way that some guy in the studio wanted it to sound. Mm. Um, and so I, I like, I love it for that reason too. Let me know if I let it fall along a back road somewhere Money can't replace it No memory can erase it And I know I'm never gonna find another one to compare some kind of
Lucinda's music, like I, I don't think it's, um, uh, it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that like the way I really came to Lucinda's music was through women musicians, you know, like, um, and that in a lot of ways that makes total sense because I feel like her her songwriting itself, if um, like I. Well, I was mentioning before that there were all of these covers of Lucinda songs that were happening um, around, you know, 2014, 2015, when I started to really dig into Lucinda's music. And those covers, I think it was so interesting to me that most of them weren't songs from Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Like people think of Car Wheels as being Lucinda's masterpiece, and it totally is, like without a doubt. But I also think that there's so much like wisdom and beauty and power in her other records that um, goes overlooked sometimes, um, at least in music journalism, um, particularly her first record or sorry, her self-titled record um, from 1988, which is my favorite actually. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, like to be um, like, the, it's such a feminist album. And I think that it, you know, it, it, it makes sense that music, music becoming a more feminist space and music journalism becoming a more feminist space, people w- would come to start to appreciate and understand that, um, that fem- feminism, like, more clearly. Um, I mean, obviously, some, like, the, the musicians who were covering passionate kisses in the 90s could hear that you know give me what i deserve because it's my right that's a feminist statement um and even just the idea that in addition to passionate kisses you want pens that won't run out of ink and cool quiet and time to think is like it's a it's an expression of some sort of like feminine interiority having an interior life that um is uh Important, and I remember when I interviewed Kate. I interviewed Katie Crutchfield um, from Waxahachie a couple of years ago about Lucinda. She told me that one of her favorite Lucinda Williams songs was "Side of the Road," which is also from the self-titled album, which is a very much a song about like being. I, I, th- there's this great line from that song: "I want to know you're there, but I want to be alone." Um, just like you know, wanting companionship and, and love, but also understanding that your solitude and like your autonomy it has to be preserved um, for your work. Um, and it's just, those are, these are sorts of ideas that I feel like, at least for me, I, um, Lucinda has articulated these ideas so powerfully in her music in a way that feels so rare to me, so unique. Um, it's like this kind of vulnerability but there's also defiance and and I feel like she also just articulates things that um like she has this way of articulating things so directly uh like it makes sense that all these punk musicians love Lucinda Williams like I always feel like it's (laughs) punks poets that love Lucinda and that totally makes sense because her music is very poetic but it has directness to it Mm. um I think that um the the, the feminism in her in her lyrics is um, a, a huge part of why she resonates with so many, um, particularly with women singer songwriters, um, and uh, I think it's also interesting that like she always she has this um, this quote that I've she said to me and she's repeated in several interviews about how um, when she finally got to put out her her self-titled record this record my favorite Lucinda record I cannot it, it 
like it baffles me that she would have trouble finding a record label to put out this music because to me it's just like every single song on that record is an absolute classic um but it wasn't until rough trade records heard her demo that had been rejected by Sony for, like I was saying before, being kind of uncategorizable in terms of not being too country for the, um, for Nashville or being too, or sorry, being too country for LA and too rock for Nashville. Um, But Rough Trade loved it. And that makes total sense to me. She said, and she has said often, like it took a punk label from England to understand my music. And that says a lot. And I think it does say a lot that it would take, um, someone like Jeff Travis, who was running Rough Trade, um, and was a, a just you know valued unconventional music, valued music that did not slot easily into the marketplace. Um, it would take someone like him to really understand and appreciate Lucinda Williams. Um, that it, it checks out to me. <laughs> Once we give up at any point in that that she, she didn't decide okay i'll do it the formulaic way i'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll become this kind of prototypical 1980s country artist the fact that she kind of stuck to her guns and and wrote music the way she wanted to write it i mean that it's really incredible to me because so few artists ever get that experience where they're going to stick with it that long so that at 35 they can have a breakout album or at at you know, 45, they can release the album that, you know, is thought of as their kind of masterpiece. Well, in, in my mind, she's like, if big star had stayed together and made five times as many records, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's the same thing of like in the eighties, everyone's talking about, you know, uh, REM and replacements are being like, well, big star is the best band of all time. Mm-hmm. And then in throughout the eighties, and uh, into the 90s, you have like Tom Petty covering Listen to Williams on the She's the One soundtrack from, you know, song that's from the self-titled record and admires like Elvis Costello, who was a, a huge champion of hers. You know, so you have all these people who have been championing her for, for so long. I think she even says, or someone in like her team or whoever said that, you know, people covering her songs is what kept her career going until she, I guess, I guess about car wheels when she, you know, kind of got the Grammy. Cause after that, you see 
she's putting out a record every couple of years mm-hmm. instead of every like six to eight or something, you know, those long gaps go away um, after this kind of mainstream success. Yeah, there was, um, there was a quote um, in the LA times in 1997, the year right, right before car wheels where the, the reporter wrote, it's a good thing Williams has gotten a boost from others because her own luck as a recording artist has been miserable. And, um, you know, that kind of summarizes it. Um, but, but yeah, I think the comparison to Big Star is a really great one for whatever reason. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there is a component of sexism um, wound up in the music industry's, um, you know, insistence that she make her songs easier to to understand or easier to like slot into a, 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 a specific radio station or something. Um, well, especially by the nineties is like, why can't you be Dolly Parton? Why can't you be Shania Twain? You know, like what, what are we going to do with you? You know, but I mean, and then you look forward, like from 98 looked like 2001 love and theft is doing a kind of a similar thing. It is, jumping like american roots music it's recorded similarly um you know so like i i think dylan ends up becoming very influenced by her um by the 21st century my own theory um mm. i can't prove it um unless <laughs> when his new book comes out maybe he he'll own up to it but a little running theory i have mm-hmm. Mikhail, you should you should quote many manifestos for female life Yes, this comes um, from, and I messaged in earlier about this because I like the line so much. Um, this comes from her new essay and when just kind of describing Lucinda's music, um, she describes it as many manifestos for, for female life. And I was like, well, that's about as perfect a description as there can be for, for Lucinda. Um, so I love that. And um, yeah, and I think that, and for like car wheels, you've also called it like a Southern travelogue. So the Southern travelogue plus the mini manifestos plus these kind of myths of Southern musicians and, you know, all this, all this kind of stuff is coming together on what, uh, for what I makes, what I think makes a uh, car wheels kind of like the masterpiece that it is. Um, where that I think all of that's kind of come together in a really exciting way. There's no question baked in here. I'm really just telling you how much I like your writing at this point. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say, yeah, I felt like what, with, with that particular phrase, um, mini manifestos for female life, I was just trying to underscore, like I was saying before, like the feminism that I feel in her music. And I, it also makes me think too of, I remember again, when I interviewed Katie Crushfield about Lucinda Williams a couple of years ago, her telling me, you know, that she sees Lucinda right at the table with like Dylan and Leonard Cohen and all of the great songwriters, but that she, Katie feels reflected in Lucinda's music in a different way. What she's writing about is so feminine. And I also just love that. like, so Lucinda really has this way of, of writing about these like rich female characters, um, especially on, her self-titled record and her, her, her happy woman blues record. Like there's a song Maria, um, who's wild and restless and the song, the night's too long about this waitress, Sylvia, who's like moving away. She's going to get what she wants. Um, I just love the directness of those songs. Um, and, uh, I love the kind of idea of the, um, 
the the, the wandering woman um, in process of like in the process of self discovery and in the process of becoming. Um, it's one of my favorite uh, genres of art is art that um, narrates this perspective. Um, and Lucinda does it so well. It's so powerful. Yeah, and it's great because it's, I mean, it's not even about like feminist politics. Like it, it is and it isn't. You know, it's not feminism from like a political point of view necessarily or a theoretical point of view, like feminist theory. Um, but it's just these mini manifesto slice of life. It's just offering a woman's perspective on these different things that you otherwise wouldn't hear, even in other forms of country music by other women you know sometimes there are songs written by men kind of for men to be performed by women you know especially when pop becomes or country becomes more popular and mainstream but you know you're not getting a lot of women in their 30s talking about self-pleasure on the opening track of a country record like that that is also like a feminist political act even though it's not about politics or anything you know and i think that's kind of her strength yeah. Also, but like Passionate Kisses, right? Kind of burying this kind of independent woman story along. But you get caught first. What hooks you is the Passionate Kisses chorus and the hook. And then you kind of go back and go through the verses. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's it's, it's very slick. And, and But she's not, I don't think she's trying to be like tricky about it. Uh, I just think that she's a, just a masterful songwriter. Yeah, it's just genius writing, really. Um uh, yeah, a song like like Passionate Kisses, I think um, it's so catchy and poppy and on the surface, it's obviously a hit. Um, and when you dig into the lyrics, you realize like this is really about writing. <laughs> it's really yeah. about um, like the life of the artist um, and, uh, you know, the idea of being a multidimensional woman, really. And I, I, th- I think that you know, like you were saying, um, the, the, the opening song of Car Reels or a song like Passionate Kisses, there's just this, like I was saying before, directness to her writing that feels really fearless to me. Fearless is such a good word for her. That's for sure. Well, we we have one more question and then we're, we're going to close with the question that we ask every guest. So you've had the opportunity to interview Lucinda Williams. And of course, as as a music journalist, you you get to do some of the things that, that we're beginning to experience, which is you have that opportunity where there's someone who is meaningful to you, who you're a fan of, and yet you also, by profession, are, are interacting with them. So I just want to ask, both as a fan of Lucinda Williams and both Makai and I as a fan of your writing, Jen, what was something you learned from talking to Lucinda? Wow, I learned so much from talking to her. Um, I should so I, I actually, I, I've had three phone conversations with her because I interviewed her um, for the LA Times two years ago. And... Um, I actually got COVID while I was working on my profile of Lucinda Williams for the LA Times. So we had to push the piece back. And I, I remember um, interviewing her again. And that and the fact that I had had COVID in March 2020 had somehow reached Lucinda. And she was so um, uh, empathetic and caring. I called her up and she was very concerned with how I was doing. And I remember being like, wow, Lucinda Williams asking me how I'm doing. So clearly I'm doing fine now <laughs> for caring. Um, 
but she, she was just so generous with her time. I could, you know, I was really astounded by that. And she was really willing to answer any question that I had, particularly about her earlier records. Um, I was really curious about her formative years as an artist because there is so much um, kind of mythology um, in there. And also just the fact that she was kind of, she was working on becoming a songwriter for so long while she was traveling and she was, you know, waiting tables and working at a record store and busking on the street and doing, you know, she, and continuing to like chip away and hone her craft. And there, that was, that was a, um, it was a long period of time for her. Um, it was her twenties and her thirties. Um, and so I was just curious to learn like in specific, like, you know, more specific details about that, what that period of her life was like and who she considered her peers to be and what it was like to play in these like small clubs when she was living in Austin and Houston and, and other cities in the, in the South. So yeah, she was just really generous with her time and, and, and the fact too that um, uh, a year later, I I got I wrote to her manager, who was her husband, to to ask again, like, would she be willing to just speak with me about the song fruits of my labor because I want to write this piece for this book that is specifically about it, and her her willingness to answer any question was just I thought um, really she's just so generous. Not a day goes by I don't think about you You left your mark on me It's permanent, a tattoo Pierce the skin and the blood runs through Similarly, Jen's essay in this new book is about Lucinda Williams, but it's also about uh, these kind of American mythologies like, well, you know, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Like these kind of mythologies and those kind of weird toxic mythos that kind of is a very much a capitalist kind of mythology as well. And so that's kind of an underlying thing like throughout her essay that's tied with Lucinda that is um, very fascinating. Um, which makes it a very great read. So okay. I want to get that out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and of course, we want to encourage all of our listeners, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow it's coming out. You can pick up this book. You want to go out and get your hands on this woman's work, Essays on Music. It's edited by Kim Gordon and Sinead Gleason. And the essay on Lucinda Williams is written by our guest, Jen Pelly. Jen, we want to thank you so much for doing this. We want to close by asking you the question we ask every one of our guests. What are your top five albums. Now this could be your, what you think are the five best. What are your five favorite five you're listening to now five underappreciated albums that you want to give some love to. We want to ask you the question, your five albums. 
five, uh, maybe I'll say my five favorite albums of the year so far. Oh, wonderful. So, uh, okay. This is off the top of my head. So let me see if I could do it. (laughs) I love the, um, the Jenny Haval album, classic objects. Um, I love the, um, the hooray for the riffraff album, life on earth. Um, this record by this band called camp cope from Australia, um, their, their new album is excellent. Um, Kate LeBon, Pompeii, and, uh, there's a punk band in New York called Strawman Army, who just put out an album that I really like and I've been listening to, um, so shout out to them also. That's awesome. Well, we will make sure to to give them some love on the podcast. Jen, thank you so much for being with us. It has been such a treat. And for our listeners, we want to again remind you tomorrow you want to pick up this woman's work, Essays on Music. You can also pick up her 33 and a third volume on the raincoats wherever you buy books. But of course, we encourage you to buy that at your local independent record store or independent book retailer. Jen, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Lucinda forever. Yeah. (laughs) Rob, there's something that kept coming up um, that I hadn't thought about a lot leading up to this podcast, and that is how interconnected punk rock and country music are Jen was talking about how her way into Lucinda was a bunch of like punk artists or or punk leaning kind of indie artists who were covering Lucinda Williams songs. And that kind of got me thinking more about like, Oh, that's kind of wild. But I thought about, you know, uncle Tupelo being compared to Minutemen when they first came on the scene and Paul Westerberg, um, was a major, like had, had a lot of country influences, uh, Elvis Costello, right. Uh, new wave punk, however you want to call him was obsessed with Hank Williams, uh, even Joe Strummer of the clash. Mm-hmm. Right. When they toured America, they would have like country artists, um, come open for them when they toured America, you know? So I, I had never really kind of considered that relationship. And after talking with Jen, it's like, Oh no, it, it totally makes sense that in 1988, rough trade would be the one to sign listen to Williams. And it would make sense that the people who would find her and, and kind of really kind of build up this legacy that, you know, where we are now with, with how we view her would come actually from the punk rock scene parallel with the country music scene, but I guess in particular the alt country scene. 
So I, I think there's a similar dynamic in, in Jin men, mentioned this. And, and I think it is that sense of everything is on the surface. Everything is right up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's, there's a boldness to that. There's a braveness to that. There's a, abrasiveness yeah there can there can be an abrasiveness to that there's but but i do think that it's it's a similar ethos it's 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 the idea of creatively saying here i am like this is it like this is this is what you're getting um and and not to say that it's music lacking in subtlety but but it is music that is unapologetic about what it is and I, I think that that's definitely true for really good punk and really good alt country Americana, I mean, whatever we're going to call this. But like, but the other truth is, I think it's also true for really good music. Period. I, I think there's some interesting things that we didn't mention in our conversation with Jen, for really for the sake of time that I kept thinking about, which is there was also a period of time where there were a bunch of artists that kind of started off in this like emo punk post punk world that very quickly went towards this kind of Americana feel more folk feel. Mm -hmm. And when I think about, especially in a song like Greenville, where you hear Emily Lou Harris, these haunting background vocals, that come in that seem simultaneously supportive and ghost-like. I mean, that's the, that's the brilliance of Emily Lou Harris. I mean, she's, I think she is country music. She is not just country musics. Emily Lou Harris might be the best background vocalist there has ever been. Um, she, you know, Emily Harris of course has a ton of her own albums and has written a bunch of her own music but she is at her very best when she is working as a background vocalist for, for other people's music. And I think about a song like Greenville. And then I think about some of the songs on the bright eyes record on wide awake. It's morning mm-hmm. where Emily Lou Harris is singing background vocals on those as well. And, and I think that you're beginning to see in, in albums like that, you're beginning to see that kind of connection point between what, Lucinda Williams is doing and then how that, how there's kind of a a similar kind of handle for people that are, you know, into like punk music and stuff like that. So by the time you get to, you know, 2010s um, it's, it's easy to see how those things have all kind of coalesced together where all of that music is, is accessible. Yeah, I agree. Emily Harris is the best. Um, which is my big takeaway. Look no further than Desire by Bob mm-hmm. Dylan and Graham Parsons' Grievous Angel, which she was supposed to have credit on. I think it was supposed to originally be Graham Parsons and Amy Lou Harris. Um, but I think that, and she was supposed to have like her name on the cover and everything, but I don't know how that fell apart. But uh, yeah, she rules. And that also reminded me that one of my ways to finding Lucinda Williams was through M. Ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same year, M. Ward and Mike Mogus, Connor Oberst, and Jim James did their Monsters of Folk album. Um, M. Ward released Hold Time, and on that record, he did um, Lonesome Me with uh, Lucinda Williams, which was originally, I believe, by Don Gibson, 
a country song, but then famously done by Neil Young on After the Gold Rush and first heard by me by M. Warden Lucinda Williams on that record, which is a, a great version of that song. Yeah. It's such a good album. Such a good album. So, Mikhail, let's, let's wrestle with the question. Should this be on our list? As I said earlier, I think this is, I think of this as a country album. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as a country album that reveals much more about country than people have been led to believe about country music because of radio friendly country music. Um, that being, and I say that because I think this is in the top, I think top three best country albums of all time. So for me, it has to be on here. Right. And we're not even big country music fans, but I think that, you know, if we're being objective, right, we have to get some, some country music representation. And I think that it's, it's no surprise that this is the first one to make it on our list. Cause I think this is the one that has kind of the most going for it um, because it is so diverse in its representation of folk music and country music more specifically. And it's um it's a no brainer for me. Um, as a, as a country album, I think needs to be on here. But generally, but I mean more broadly, I think this just is one of the great albums, right? I mean this is this is an an artist who keeps coming back up, um, kind of in the zeitgeist or in the in the kind of music world as being cited as one of the great influences. And I think this is the best record she has, and I think that she has. You know, I mean, I really great record. The self-titled record is great. Essence has some, like the first few tracks on Essence are mind-blowing. You know, like all the albums kind of surrounding, like the the couple before and a couple after this one are. There's like a really great five album run, honestly. Yeah. um, Here, so I'm. We're in no way saying this is the only great one. Um, but I think it's the best one. I, the, the self-title is not far behind it for me. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think this is a, yeah, I, it's a, it's a no brainer for me. I don't have any hesitations. I think this is, I think this is one of the great albums. I, mm-hmm. I think that I, I want to be careful not to do, here's the list. So we need to do, you know, X number of country albums and X number of jazz albums and X number of rap out. Like for me, I think, I think that becomes um, problematic. And I think that leads us ultimately to leaving deserving albums off the list. Uh, I, I think you sound I think, like someone who's against affirmative action right now. It's like, I don't know. Maybe you should just go to the most deserving album, not the one that's <laughs> meeting a certain quota. If I'm just, we were, I'm just if, we were talking, if we were talking about historic marginalization and disenfranchisement of country albums, then sure. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I think if we were to take every, every imaginable genre of music and then rank what we think are the best three or four albums in that genre of music, I think that we would end up creating a list that doesn't accurately look like the things you and I love the most and what we actually think are the best. Uh-huh. And so I, 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 I want to be careful with being like, Hey, we need to put this on cause it's a country album. This is a great album that deserves to be on the list, regardless of what we call it. 
I mean, I, but I was just saying, like, objectively, you know, like, this is, you know, a great yeah. album. Yeah, it's a great album. And, and again, if you if you classify it as a country album, then I, I, I would say it's probably a top 10 country album of all time. That being said, I believe it deserves a space on our list. It deserves a spot on our list. It's, it's nice coming off of the... Elliot Smith and being like, I don't know which, which one's it going to be. And it's nice to have someone like Lucinda who has, and like even Lauren Hill is like, well, we only have one to choose from, but it's nice to look at Lucinda's career and have 15 albums. Um, all good. Um, some like great and a couple masterpieces, mm-hmm. you know, and to say it is, it's nice to just kind of, uh, look at one and be like, yes, this is the one because we've had some, some real head scratchers and some puzzlers. Uh, so yeah, feels good. Yeah. Listener, what about you? Are we introducing you to a record? If we are, I'm so excited for that because we have introduced you to a phenomenal one. That's pastor Rob talking. If you just said this prayer for the first time, let us know. <laughs> pastor Rob, he's back at it. Coming off of Easter real strong. <laughs> if you've just listened to Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road for the first time, bow, bow your heads and, and raise your hands. You, we want to see those would hands. You, would, would you, with every, every head bowed and every eye closed, <laughs> listen, if you haven't heard Lucinda Williams before, I hope that you'll pick up this album because it's a great one. Uh, and, and that you'll dive further into Lucinda Williams because she's a phenomenal artist. If you're already a Lucinda Williams fan, did we get this right? Is her self-titled album the album that should be on our list? We want to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter at YouForgotOnePod, on Instagram at YouForgotOne. Of course, our website, YouForgotOne.com. You can like, subscribe, follow, rate, and review us on whatever your preferred podcasting platform is and we're going to leave you now with the closing track of car wheels on a gravel road here's jackson all the way to jackson i don't think i'll miss you Here for